if you look at the 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th centuries, you start out with a century where millions of people migrated, then tens of millions, hundreds of millions in the 20th century. And in the 21st century, we will experience billions of people migrating. I'm Isabel Hogal, and this is Borderline. Yes, this is Borderline, with a few hours delay in releasing the podcast. My apologies, this is what happens when you're a solo operation and you get a little sick and overwhelmed. However, no worries, this is a new episode. This week, I am speaking with the author Parag Khanna. Parag Khanna is a political scientist. He's based in Singapore. He wrote Move, The Forces Uprooting Us, which is a look broad and global into the future of mass migration and his thesis really is simple mass migration is inevitable and we should be smart about it and embrace it and prepare for it rather than try to fight it he's looking at the impact of both climate change that is moving people north into more habitable areas of the planet as well as demographics especially in richer countries like mine like ours where the population is in fact declining aging at least and we need young vital forces to work in our economies to care for our elderly and care for our children and so the logical step for all of humanity is essentially a giant reshuffling of where humanity is on the planet now that's a pretty bold proposition that we're going to get into with him and look at how concretely that happens. But before we start, a big thank you to two new members, Luis Malaver Ortega and Richard Hegarty. You can join them by going to borderlinepod.com slash subscribe. You can become a member for just £5 a month or 50 a year if you want to be an annual member. You can also donate in euros or dollars or rupees if you prefer. I really, really appreciate everything that you're doing in supporting this work and I appreciate you for listening. Even without spending a penny, you can also help by sharing this around you. Share the newsletter, share the podcast, and make sure to bring more of your friends to this community. Now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Parag Khanna. Thank you uh, first for, do- for doing this. Really appreciate it. I thought we could before we get into the future vision that you have, talk about what's happening today. So kind of what's the picture right now of migration on our planet? Well, that is a great place to start. And, uh, you know, indeed, if we're not going to jump straight into the future, why don't we at least jump back to the past, right? Just a a brief overview of the past 100,000 years, which is to say it's during that period of time. (laughs) In short. (laughs) In short, in a sentence or two, in the past 100,000 years, humankind colonized all the continents, which means, uh, you know, as sort of per definition, that we have been migratory, we have been nomadic, otherwise we wouldn't be where we are. You know, migration is part of every single human being's journey that exists in the world today. And in the past several hundred years, Western societies have actually been very good at absorbing mass migration waves. Um, but to put to come straight to the point, you know, in the past several centuries, the decimal place has been moving to the right. Well, what do I mean by that? If you look at the 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th centuries, you start out with a century where millions of people migrated, then tens of millions, 
hundreds of millions in the 20th century. In the 21st century, we will experience billions of people migrating. Again, the decimal place has always been moving to the right. But we got to where we are through this continuous process of ever-expanding mass migrations, and it's not going to stop. You asked, where are we right now? Well, where we are right now, of course, due to the pandemic, is a fairly artificial, almost complete standstill in that process. But the year 2019 witnessed a record high in the number of people who crossed borders in a single year. About 1.5 billion human beings crossed a border in 2019. At that point in time, about 275 million people were living outside their country of origin. Again, the highest number ever recorded. So yes, there's been a temporary you know, reset in some of these uh, pairings of countries due to the pandemic, but I fully expect that post-pandemic, we're going to have the continuous expansion of migration for many, many reasons, not least of which is climate change. Whether or not you feel migration depends to some degree on whether or not your country is either a large source of emigration or a large destination for immigration. So most Chinese people may never leave China, except China has the world's largest diaspora. And Chinese are traveling outbound, hundreds of millions of them every single year on holiday for the first time, second time, or, or as regulars. And so international exposure is touching them. They may be receiving remittances from a relative abroad, so they have a direct connection to migration, even if they've never migrated internationally. China is also a good example because let's remember that more people migrate internally than internationally. That doesn't mean they haven't migrated. It's actually one of the very, very, I would say, kind of uh, dangerous biases in the very word or our interpretation of the word migration that we only focus on international migration. But to simply have your life radically altered, you don't have to cross a border. You just have to move from a village to a city. And that's, of course, the story of China, uh, particularly from the 1970s, uh, 1960s, 70s onward. And indeed, the largest mass migration in human history is simply Chinese within China, from rural areas in the countryside to cities. And that has immeasurably changed people's quality of life. The same thing is happening right now in India. So it's, it's an unfortunate, you know, but not, not sort of, you know, inexcusable sort of bias that people like you and me bring to the conversation. When I started writing this book, I immediately, you know, I, I ruled out domestic migration until I started going right back down to the most fundamental nature and definition of migration itself, which does not in any way denote that it must cross a border, right? It is about movement and mobility. So, you know, all, in, so in that sense, uh, almost everyone is touched by migration in some way, shape, or form, whether it's domestic or international. But uh, beyond that, again, we have to break it down into these categories. You know, how are you affected? Is it you yourself or is it a relative of yours and, and it still materially impacts your life or, you know, emotionally or whatever the case may be? Mm. And actually, when we include domestic uh, migration, I think it makes the, the experience of mobility sound much more familiar um, to a lot of people who, who don't think of themselves as, mi as migrants, you know, Americans, for instance, are quite mobile and will often move from, from city to city, state to state throughout their lives uh, and don't necessarily think of themselves as, as migrants, do they? 
Well, they've simply moved, um, you know, and again, Chinese people also don't refer to themselves as migrants if they've moved from, you know, one village A to city B, right? Uh, so whether or not we use the term in our own vernacular is not the issue. Uh, you know, we're, we're simply, it's simply a definitional kind of thing. But by the way, since you mentioned America, it's important to point out that Americans have been relatively stuck in place. The highest rate of Americans moving and relocating, let's say, um, was during the 60s and 70s in the kind of great westward expansion after the completion of the interstate highway system and so forth. And ever since that time, Americans have become more and more sedentary. And uh, this is one of the great and interesting exceptions to the pandemic lockdown, the so-called lockdown, the term that we use to almost suggest that every human being in the world was stuck inside their homes for two years. In fact, the rate of American internal relocation skyrocketed and uh, you know bounced back to levels not seen in a couple of in a couple of generations during the pandemic as people started to take advantage of remote work and wanted to move to places with you know clean air and perhaps better prospects for uh, you know covid treatment or being covid free that kind of thing so in in a way under the surface of that kind of you know almost uh, rhetorical notion that the world was you know quote unquote locked down there has been a tremendous amount of movement actually just not of course the levels that we were accustomed to in a frictionless kind of pre-pandemic world let's remember for example that several million South Asians, Indians and Pakistanis, moved back from the Gulf countries to India and Pakistan because their construction sites were shut down that they were working on. Right now, if you're from New Zealand and you want to go home, you've been waiting online for a year and a half for a quarantine hotel to open up at the Auckland airport so that you can uh, let, be let back into your country. So uh, the reason I give some of these examples is to point out that moving back also means moving. Reverse migration is a form of migration. A Chinese person who spent decades in America who decides that, you know what, I can't deal with this anti-Asian sentiment anymore, I'm going to move back to China, that person has also moved, right? And part of my argument is that actually people are moving in zigzagging ways all the time and in growing number. And it could mean going back to a place that you didn't think you'd go back to. The big example that I give of this is something of a hypothetical, but it's certainly one that will is in all likelihood will come true, which is Americans have been moving from north to south, from the rust belt to the sun belt because of the deindustrialization of the American kind of, you know, uh, Great Lakes region. But of course, the Great Lakes region is America's climate oasis. It's the most propitious zone for human habitation, perhaps in the entire world, given the supply of fresh water. However, it's not great economics. It doesn't have great economic circumstances right now. So I predict that all of those Americans who move from the Rust Belt to the Sun Belt are going to wind up moving back to the Rust Belt uh, because it's near the Great Lakes. And, and they'll be followed by many, many other Americans who live in drought-stricken areas or areas where coastal flooding uh, or other kinds of, you know, uh, extreme weather phenomenon have afflicted those geographies. So again, unexpected zigzagging patterns, whether international or domestic, are going to be a feature of uh, our migration patterns in the future. Mm, it's something we've seen um, a lot here in London during during the pandemic, actually. I mean, the numbers are are disputed, but there's one study that says more than 1 million uh, European 
migrants have left London and the UK in general. A lot of people have gone home because that's where they wanted to spend lockdown because it was a little scary here and there was no work. Um, and of course, the big question now is is whether they'll be able to return. And there's major labor shortages uh, in a lot of the industries that's, that they used to work in. Because of course, with Brexit, it's actually not at all easy for them to return in the way that they, they would have in the past. Um, or if they wanted to, if yeah. they wanted, and this is where I think that, you know, again, the very softly articulated or benign articulation of the British position that you just very, uh, you know, very elegantly put forward is, uh, is again, clever. But, you know, my task is to expose it, not you, but the kind of shenanigans and shambles of British immigration policy, because you got really caught off guard. Right. The combination of Brexit and COVID meant that not only had you driven away the Polish plumbers and uh, truck drivers and then the NHS nurses over the last several years, such that on the eve of the pandemic, you had major shortages in your healthcare system and other sectors. And then the pandemic just massively compounded it to the degree that the ill effects have been disastrous for Britain right now as we speak. You know, 100,000 uh, shortage of truck drivers fuel and food not being delivered, people, you know, hoarding. Of course, I mean, think about the calamity, the tragedy of all of the excess mortality uh, due to COVID, not having enough nurses and caregivers. I mean, all of this is horrible and it's not a joke. I mean, you have a government that makes it seem like a, like a big joke. Um, but, you know, from an, from, from an outsider or a British person, anyone with a conscience, uh, you know, your immigration policy is not just shooting yourself in the foot, it's shooting human beings. You're actually, people have died as a result of having such an asinine, you know, immigration policy going back to Brexit. And I'm pleased to say, uh, if nothing else, that Britain has been learning its lesson because it's literally legally easier to migrate to the UK right now, this very minute, than it was um, uh, before Brexit. So you might want to, you know, people may ask themselves, well, then what was that all about? Now, obviously, it was more um, emotive and there was a whole lot of play in terms of legal uh, sovereignty and, and control over one's affairs. I get that. I know. But at the end of the day, the one of, among other things, in terms of, you know, diverted investment, supply chains, uh, trade related frictions and all of these sorts of issues, also fiscal issues that relate to having now less EU subsidies and funds purely from the demographic standpoint. Um, of course, it was disastrous uh, to have done it. Um, there were other ways to go about managing one's demographics. And again, it's just a sign. And, and Britain, in this case, is not unique in um, you know, messing around and tinkering with something that should be left to supply and demand, and instead thinking that it's simply going to wave a wand and do things, quote unquote, its own way. And one of the things I definitely learned in the course of this research is that demographics is a highly complex kind of organism. You know, you, you don't just, it, it's not so simple as a sheer number of people coming in and out or, or, you know, picking winners and losers in terms of what countries they come from, because everyone has a choice where they're going to go. And the Polish people who you're trying to get back as truck drivers aren't coming because guess what? In the several years since you chased them away, they've got better jobs with better protections and higher wages. So you can't bribe them to come to your silly shit show of a government right now. And I want to be really cruel, you know, because I'm speaking to you not as some someone who has come from a country that's gotten it right. You know, I'm an American political scientist, academic. It is my job 
to look at these things and to compare good and bad performance. And if we can't, in the Anglo-American world that is so chummy and holier than thou, be honest with each other when we screw up, then we're never going to fix our problems. You know, I've worked at, uh, in the American government. I've advised parts of the British government. And I take the responsibility of governance very seriously. And when I see the people who run our societies and run some of these very crucial, vital uh, areas of policy be such amateurs and screw it up, I get angry. And I actually have the luxury of not even living in the US or UK right now. But I'm still angry on behalf of all of my fellow countrymen and citizens and contemporaries. Well, I'm a I'm an EU migrant to the UK, so I take none of this uh, personally. <laughs> I've, I've battled with the Home Office myself um, and seen many friends do, do as well. I, I would perhaps question the idea that it's easier. It's certainly not easier for Europeans to, to migrate to the UK than it used to be. They have come up with a few um, easier programs, certainly for migrants. There are still huge, incredible barriers um, in terms of cost, because the Home Office makes something like a thousand percent profit on, on all the fees that it charges for migration. Uh, and uh, in terms of, of length as well, they, they, their answer is no by default. And you, you systematically have to fight on everything and hire a lawyer and all of that. Yeah. So The U.S. Um, is, of course, the same. Yeah. 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 And, um, you know, and I'm, I'm French and the, the, the debate, if you can call it that, in the upcoming presidential election is is incredibly ugly in, in terms of anti-immigration uh, rhetoric. It really seems like a lot of those older, wealthier countries are really shooting themselves in the foot. And I say older because you do point out the demographics in a lot of the, the West and the richer economies are a time bomb. That, that we're ignoring, for which migration could be a solution, but it seems, is it a lack of imagination or that we're refusing to see the very obvious answer in front of us? I mean, it's definitely a lack of imagination. It's a status quo bias. It's a generational conservative bias. You know, older people who themselves are the ones most in need of, uh, you know, elderly care and caregivers who mostly need to be imported are the ones who are voting against immigration. You see this in the most pronounced way in uh, Germany, you know, in Eastern German provinces. And, you know, I get it in terms of their cultural biases, of course, but at some point they need to realize what's good for them. And of course, they're not thinking about, you know, sort of fiscal stability either, because they're primarily concerned with the kinds of, uh, you know, preservation of their entitlements in terms of the pension system and, uh, and so forth. But meanwhile, they're forgetting that if you're not importing young people, then you're not going to have a tax base in the future, but they don't care because they'll be dead. Um, you know, and, and this is, these are all blunt ways of putting what are actually, it's a pretty succinct summary of what's happening in terms of the political economy of, of, of sort of fiscal policy uh, on, on these sorts of social issues. And unfortunately, because every position is so self-interested, short-term and oversimplified, you don't wind up getting a reconciliation of these points of view, and you don't wind up getting the kind of pragmatic, long-term, again, supply and demand-driven policy that you should have. And again, I would say as a voter, as a citizen, as a taxpayer, you should demand better. And, you know, everyone should have the common sense to take this complex issue seriously and to, in a matter-of-fact way, calculate how many people your country needs 
and to make sure you're getting those people. Otherwise, at some point, you cease to be a civilized country because your old people are dying alone. Your mothers uh, and, and you know, sisters and aunts and uncles don't get to go to work because they have to stay home and take care of kids. The women have to drop out of the workforce. Uh, none of this is uh, necessary at all, right? But it's a self-inflicted wound, and I personally wouldn't tolerate it. So you lay out kind of four different scenarios of where we might go from here, one of which is good, and the other three are, are pretty, um, pretty worrying. Could you kind of sum up what they are? And most importantly, how do we get the good one? What do we do? <laughs> Right. And so, you know, um, you know, uh, I, there are four scenarios in the book. Um, three of them are rather pessimistic or cynical. Uh, only one of them is represents a vision uh, and at most a vision for, you know, what we could do to to get this right. Very briefly, regional fortresses is the kind of status quo scenario where Europe, North America, Northeast Asian countries kind of wall themselves off from immigration and focus on their own environmental sustainability, renewable technologies, more self-sufficiency, that kind of thing. The two most negative scenarios that are both low migration and low sustainability are called uh, nor uh, barbarians at the gate and the new Middle Ages. So it's as bad as it sounds. Our efforts at um, sustainability fail. It's too little too late. Climate change accelerates. Uh, supply chains are disrupted. Agriculture is sort of, you know, wiped out. Uh, we become hunter-gatherers. We, we've got resource wars and land grabs, water wars, that kind of thing. And again, that's already happening, of course. Look at the U.S.-Mexico border. Look at the Mediterranean, right? Um, and, uh, and then the final scenario is what I call Northern Lights. And Northern Lights is a scenario where we focus on a gradual, steady um, you know, uh, uh, effort at recirculating the world population, resettling people from vulnerable areas to habitable geographies, assimilating them into societies, creating the kind of work that is necessary to retrofit our civilization anyway to a climate change world, and do all of that with the sustainable technologies that we have at our disposal right now, today. Whether it is hydro and aquaponic agriculture, whether it is, um, uh, you know, obviously electrification through, you know, battery packs, uh, you know, all of these kinds of things, you know, obviously wind and solar power, all of these sorts of things. We can do all of that right now. We can have 3D printed housing. We don't have to, you know, either, we don't have to create cement and or dig cement into the ground. Um, so we can do all of this. And if we devote our efforts as, again, as a, as a civilization, as a collection of economies uh, towards this, uh, then we would actually manage to uh, preserve our numbers as a species in new geographies in a dynamic and mobile way, but also sustainably. So can it be done? Sure. Um, is it being done? You know, in some places it is, if you look at Canada, right? So Canada is a place that's, uh, you know, massively pursuing immigration, uh, 400,000 uh, migrants every single year. That's in some years close to the number that the U.S. imports, but Canada has only one-tenth the population of the United States. So Canada is really, you know, quite heroic in this regard. And it's obviously also a climate propitious geography, one of the places I call a climate oasis uh, in the book. So I would like to see other climate oases have Canadian-like policies. And if they did, it would actually go a pretty long way towards achieving this Northern Lights scenario. Hmm. What's the time horizon uh, on a scenario like this? Because what you're talking about is a pretty radical change of, you know, not just a physical geography of humanity, but the cultures, the, the ways people live. I mean, if, if, you know, Bangladesh, which is going to be largely underwater, you know, everyone moves up to 
<laughs> to Canada or, or, or to the Arctic Circle in Russia, like that's an entire culture essentially that you're that you're uprooting and that, that you're moving. Um, you know, so here's the thing: when you think about cultures that are, in any case, at, at such a high risk, right, from 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 climate change, you know, the people of South Asia are an obvious example. Uh, if you look at IPCC models and forecasts around which geographies are going to be most negatively affected by climate change, all of South Asia is a bright, pulsing red. So you're talking about the largest concentration of people on the entire planet the 1.8, 1.9 billion people of South Asia. So on the one hand, you know, uh, it's a pity, a trav travesty to have to leave one's home. On the other hand, it's a matter of survival. When you think about the depleting groundwater, the droughts, the rising sea levels, the cyclones, all of these sorts of things, people will have to move. They'll have to relocate. So, you know, one of the things I report on in the book is the Indian populations that have been moving to Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and Russia, and all the way to Europe. Now, of course, they're going to have a far higher survival rate outside of India than in India. In India, so you have to ask yourself, right? You know, it's not their fault that climate change is accelerating. They are the victims. But are they victims who want to die, or are they victims that are, you know, going to have to accept this re uprooting and relocation? And of course, many of them are voluntarily pursuing it. These are also the same countries that, not for reasons of climate change, but for politics, uh, are high sources of emigration. Right? Indians want to leave India. India is one of the poorest countries in the world. India is not well governed. Um, you know, so it's inhospitable to uh, to many people who are either talented or women or Muslim or whatever the case may be. So. You know, again, is a humanitarian at a matter of humanitarian interest and self-interest for those people that they want to get out. So again, you know, we construct this sort of bucolic kind of vision, hypothetical that oh, what a pity to have to unroot. Well, that's one thing if you live in uh, Athens. Right. Um, but Athens is kind of more or less ish going to be okay. There's terrible heat waves, but you can install air conditioning. It's a wealthy enough country. Um, you know, but we're talking about billions of people who don't live in such places and, and you know, again, are going to be far more negatively impacted. In terms of the recipient countries, um, again, the fact is that we have been, as I said at the beginning, you know, mass migration societies for hundreds of years. Our culture today is not some kind of immutable um immutable transplant from the 15th century, right? Our culture today is already the melange, the result, uh, the syncretic result of uh, centuries of mass migrations, you know, hence, you know, curry is a popular British food, you know, to, to just to, to borrow that very common trope. Um, and, uh, and, and so on and so forth. So I think we have to realize that it's really just about embracing that which we've already been doing, and viewing it as something that is not just going to be accidental and uh, sort of, you know, sort of passive, but it's going to have to become active in this age of climate change and, and demographic deflation. Hmm. I think the difference, perhaps, is that it's happening a lot faster uh, than that maybe than what we've we've done in the past. I understand, you know, the argument that it is a hundred percent in in the interest of all parties involved, but humans have not always been known to do what's in their best interest <laughs> so how do we get that to be more more accepted you know when you when you hear the political discourse again against migration and then thinking also about the cost i mean obviously if you're fleeing floods and horrible heat waves and all this it becomes a bit of a no-brainer to move but that's not going to be so dire for everyone and there is a huge cost not just economic but 
emotional, social, to picking up your life and, and moving it somewhere else, right? So how do, how do we make that more palatable? You know, I think even using the word we is tricky here because one of the things that you kind of realize when you look at global, so-called global migration or even global climate change is that there is no we. There isn't really one common, you know, policy. We're coming out of COP26 where there have been a whole bunch of kind of virtue signaling pronouncements uh, and so forth. But really, is Canada as threatened by climate change as, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Somalia is? No, right? And, um, and so I think, unfortunately, we're never going to have a global migration accord. We're never going to have a sort of genuinely even-handed way of dealing uh, with, with this issue. You're going to have uh, pairs of countries. You're going to have regional clusters and formations and patterns and that kind of thing. And so what assimilation looks like, what the new political formations look like is going to be different region by region by region, unfortunately. I was just in a long conversation yesterday about Africa. Most African migration is within Africa. Uh, you know, migration within West Africa looks very different from within East Africa and within Sub-Saharan Africa. In some places, it's gotten violent. In the last few years, we've seen scenes in, in our own news around what has happened as various um, kind of ghettos that have formed as people from sub-Saharan African countries have, have sort of, you know, sort of just uh, aggregated in, um, in various slums of South Africa. And now the military has gone in and riots have broken out. And there's other examples where you have, uh, you know, a melting pot place like Nairobi, where it's, you know, it's, it's more certainly more stable than many other countries in Africa. And it is really becoming something of a, you know, pan-African and certainly East African melting pot. So very different answers in very different places, even within the same, you know, sort of broader uh, geography or, or continent or region. Mm. You mentioned Nairobi. You make some real interesting points about cities, uh, the power of cities, and even that, that we could have an allegiance, a lot of people do, in fact, have an allegiance to a city more than to a, a nationality uh, of, of the country that they, that they happen to be in. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Sure. This is a concept that I've been kind of uh, playing with for some time, and I borrow it from my great friend Daniel Bell, who is a Canadian uh, political theorist and uh, a sort of sociologist who lives in China. And he started using this term civicism, which is kind of pride and loyalty to the city, not necessarily always over the state, but certainly as one's primary self-identification, even if it doesn't carry a passport with it. And so we, you know, he's uh, done a, a volume, a compendium that I've contributed to about global cities and the sense of identity in that city and whether or not people, you know, how much people feel a pride in their country versus the city. You know, if you take me, so I'm a New Yorker, right? And uh, I'm definitely a very proud New Yorker. I love New York, you know, warts and all. Uh, I'm also an American, but it's sort of like, you know, and, and I'm a patriotic American. I even, you know, was an advisor in the Pentagon and served in Iraq and Afghanistan. So, you know, I have credentials in both aspects. I don't see them as conflicting, but people say, where are you from? I'm like, I'm a New Yorker. Well, everyone knows that probably means you're also an American, um, you know, judging from my accent, I'm obviously American in, in, in sort of, you know, sort of uh, uh, incontrovertible ways. Um, but, but within that, you know, or beyond that, or in a way that's more revealing or telling or interesting than that, I'm a New Yorker. And that tells you a whole bunch of other things. And it also, again, reflects those inner feelings. So the word civicism is really important in that regard. And I view, again, more and more young people 
especially because they're more migratory, you know, and they, they are, you know, living in cities, you know, the sort of young population, young urban population of the world is obviously um, a, a driver of the demographics of urbanization. So I think from a young person's point of view, that's also a, a very interesting layer uh, of identity that we can add to our, to our discourse. I can certainly recognize that because having been here a bit over five years now, London has certainly been um, the place that has welcomed me and taken me in. And I felt very welcomed even by, by the city government who's tried to make my life easier. But it is still the country that decides my status as an immigrant and whether I'm allowed to stay. And, <laughs> and uh, there is certainly a very, very different discourse to immigrants, uh, whether you're listening to the London leadership versus the... Uh, Absolutely. And, and this is such a crucial point. I'm glad you mentioned it. Remember Sadiq Khan saying, well, you know, you people out there may have voted for Brexit, but don't mess with my city and don't mess around with my right to have talent come in as and when I need it. And, you know, I'm going to push for London, you know, place-based visas if I need to, to ensure that London has the type pipeline it needs. And I say, go get them. You know, I'm a huge fan of thinking like that. And, um, you know, the sanctuary cities in America are very much the same. Again, the worst, well, among the worst mistakes a country can make is to go against the interests of its principal cities, right? There is no country, there is no economy without the city. And that's very true, even in a wealthy country like the UK, where London is, you know, whatever, 30 plus percent of the GDP. That said, you don't want to see capital cities hoard resources and not, you know, distribute the wealth. That would also be problematic. But to make federal decisions that literally undermine yourself is a mistake. And of course, again, Brexit is a case in point in that there is no great power in history that isn't built on great cities and the accomplishments of great cities and the connectivity and influence of great cities. Remember that we've had cities for 7,000 years. We've had modern nation states for a couple of hundred years and universally for only about 75 years. It is nothing more than a passing phase, right? And you can say that with complete confidence, despite all the maps on our walls telling you something different. Um, because, you know, countries come and go. They're, 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 they're born and grow and collapse all the time. I devoted a whole book, Connectography, you know, to pointing out that there are pipelines in the Middle East that predate Arab states, such as we know them today. And after those states fall apart, the pipeline will still be there. There are cities um, like Damascus and Baghdad and Cairo uh, and Beirut that have been around, again, for, for literally a couple of thousand years, long before the modern state. And long after those states are gone, those cities will be there. So make no mistake what the central unit of spatial organization is for, for humankind. It is not the state right? Even as much as we have states, it is the city and it will always be the city. Agreed, agreed. You make actually that, that point in conclusion of the book uh, in calling for a global passport, a passport that is not linked to, if I understand it correctly, to a nation state identity. Can you tell me a bit more about that and how that would work? Yes. So the idea of uh, either a you know, so-called global passport or rather, in this case, a passport as an app, a passport that's on the blockchain is, I think, an idea whose time is long overdue and is coming. Because really, all of the kind of information that you provide to get a visa in your passport, uh, whether it is your travel history, your criminal history, your education records, uh, you know, utility bills, your flight itineraries, and of course, now your COVID certificate 
gamification, all of that is online somewhere. All of that can be uploaded to a blockchain and shared as needed with the appropriate authorities on a temporary basis so that it can be evaluated and your visa can be granted. And that visa can very much be delivered as a QR code since, of course, as of now, you also have your vaccine QR code. So we've never had QR codes as the foundation of enabling international mobility. We've only had these floppy passports and stamps in them, which is, if you think about it in a 21st century context, kind of retro, right? I mean, we're talking about a the stamp is, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you know, dates back to roughly uh, the BC era, right? So, you know, it's not absolutely essential today. Uh, you know, so the future of travel is definitely the QR code. And, uh, and it should be an app on your phone. And we should do, do away with floppy paper passports. Now, this is not just about the aesthetic it's obviously about enabling people to, wherever they are in the world, provide that data, get that approval, all from the one device that almost every human being in the world has in their hand. Not every human being can fly to a nearby country where there happens to be a British embassy or high commission and then wait online and provide hundreds of dollars in payment only to stand behind a bulletproof glass and have their application rejected, which, as you and I know, is what happens to most people who are applying for British or American visas. All of this can and should be done instantaneously online um, or, you know, within a 24-hour period. And that would be to everyone's benefit, of course, both the emigrants as well as the recipient countries that really need those people. Again, I refer to the pandemic experience where even though we were under a so-called lockdown, please tell that to the American embassies because all over the world, American embassies were open. And what were they doing? They were out begging nurses in third world countries to uh, give up their livelihoods in their home countries and move to America to take care of dying elderly in American hospitals, right? So that's not some kind of 9-11 conspiracy theory. That's what happens when you have a terrible, stupid immigration policy um, and you wind up running around with a begging bowl saying, please, you know, uh, report to the U.S. Embassy if you have a nursing degree, we'll give you a one-way ticket to America, right? And is that what should be happening? Is that any way to run your country? You know, I find that, quite frankly, appalling. Meanwhile, the British government has been sending letters to everyone with a uh, truck driving license to try <laughs> to get them out of retirement and, uh, and back on a fleet of, uh, you know, Dunkirk-style trucks to try and, and uh, feed the country, essentially. It is pretty amazing how, how short-sighted a lot of these things um, have yeah. been. Yeah. How likely do you think it is that you know, we kind of see the light and implement some of these smarter policies. I mean, you mentioned that, you know, historically, we've, we've actually have been pretty good at bringing in the, the migration that, that we needed. Um, yeah. You could say, um, I call myself an accidental optimist, you know, I mean, sort of, you know, it's like what Churchill said about democracy, worst form of government, except for all the others. And, and what will happen here is we'll pursue all the wrong policies until we arrive at the right one. Um, and again, some places will get there earlier than others. There's the Canada and Germany examples. The UK, you know, again, is turning around in this area, given uh, all of the stumbles and failures of recent years. So I think the UK is also realizing that, that having a strategic immigration policy is important. The fact that you have this this accelerated aging of the world population and a decline in fertility means that, you know, we really do have this strong demand for a young talent. So, you know, again, the operative principle in this book is what I call the global war for young talent. 
And the FOMO effect will kick in because countries will say, how come we're so dumb and Canada is so smart? Why don't we compete with Canada for talent? You know, how come America used to get all the talent? Canada said, well, we should get that talent. And how come European countries are now saying maybe we should start teaching English so that we get some of that young talent? And on and on it goes. And you can see these things happening already right now over the last few years. And eventually, there'll just be a couple of holdouts left standing, which are places that no one wants to go to anyway, like Hungary, you know. Um, but long before then, and, and, you know, long after Viktor Orban, you know, I mean, he'll be long gone at some point, and you'll see Hungarian policy change. Or given the emigration from Hungary, there won't even be that many Hungarians. It's a tiny country to begin with. You know, I, I pick on Bulgaria in the book because it's obviously just another Eastern European country that obviously is a proud, you know, obviously identity and patriotic nationalist tradition, which it's more than entitled to have. But it's also the one of the world's most rapidly depopulating countries, while it only has five or six million people to begin with. So I say this now as a political geographer in a very blunt but factual statement. There will be people living on the territory that is currently known as Bulgaria in the year 2040 and 2050 and 2060. I just don't know if there'll be any Bulgarians, right? And if you're a Bulgarian today, you may have a problem with that. But again, you'll be gone, right? And the story of human history of the past 100,000 years is that we move, we're nomadic, you know, we will not be where we are right now, 100, you know, uh, even, uh, maybe even 30 or 40 years from now, let alone the next 100,000 years. So I don't have a problem saying that if this is a fertile, habitable, survivable geography on the planet Earth, people will find their way there, even if there's a line on the map that says, oh, you know, this place happens to belong to the Bulgarians, but the Bulgarians are gone, because they're old, or they've emigrated, right? So I don't have a problem saying that. It's just up to you to realize that, well, this is kind of actually a very obvious statement. If you look at, at the history of the past 100, 200, 300, 400, 500, or 1,000 years, there's no, uh, you know, this shouldn't really come as a shock to anyone. So in, when you asked, you know, how likely is it that we'll get there, it's 100% likely because we're mammals and mammals have a fight or flight instinct. So you choose death or you choose retreat. Um, in about 100% of cases, just about, mammals will choose retreat. So the human population will relocate. We might as well see it coming. We might as well plan for it. We might as well make the most of it and prepare and even generate what our next and more progressive and sustainable model of human civilization is going to be. And I quite, quite frankly think it's going to be a beautiful, mobile and sustainable and circular and technologically infused civilization. And I wish that we would get there sooner rather than later so that more people would survive to see it. Mm. It's fascinating, actually, those authoritarian uh, nationalistic leaders in, in Eastern Europe do realize this. Orban convenes, I think it's every other year, this, this kind of big nativist pro-birth summit where um, they're encouraging natality and encouraging family policies. Except, of course, uh, it essentially encourages white women to have a bunch of children and not work and not aspire to anything else. Uh, that's their, that's their one answer. And su unsurprisingly, not many people are taking them up on it. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, th this is, this is interesting. It's something that's happening all over the world. There have been pro fertility kinds of, you know, schemes going on, especially in Europe for many years. And, and even now in China, they've all failed. And I assure you, they'll continue to fail. The fact is that young people don't want to have kids because of economic insecurity or climate change or, you know, post-materialist kind of values. You know, you call it what you want. The, the fact that there's so many reasons why is a reminder that nothing you do to the contrary is going to work. Um, so, you know, we've been down this road. 
And the fact is that, it, but all of this should remind us again, well, the world population is not going to be, um, you know, 15 billion people, and we're not heading to a Malthusian crisis. We have 8 billion people and not a whole lot more coming. This is the maximum number of people that will ever live in the world. Our population is actually going to decline no matter what we do. So actually, we should reset our task. It's not about preserving this land as my land and you cannot come in. It's like we kind of have an existential dilemma here. We need to survive. We kind of want more than 2 billion people to be alive, right? We, we want to survive and ensure the survival of the maximum number of human beings. So once you realize this demographic deflation, what I call peak humanity, you should, I hope, as a conscious sentient being with some kind of a moral impulse, you know, whoever you are, if you have any more, even the remotest ethical sensibility of any kind, I hope that that, that mere fact alone would convince you that you should be thinking a little bit broader than just me, my country, my land right now amidst all of these really existential you know, risks and, that we face. And you should be saying, you know what, maybe we do need to think about policies that are actually going to preserve our, our, our numbers. Thank you so much for this conversation. It was fascinating. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you to Parag Khanna. He wrote Move the Forces Uprooting Us. It's published by Scribner in the U.S., Orion in the UK. It's also available in German and in Italian, I believe. Parag Khanna talked to us from Singapore. Next time, I'll be talking to Kamal Al-Salehli, author of the book Return. As always, remember to sign up for the newsletter at borderlinepod.com where you can read also plenty of other articles and see archives of the podcast. We're now at 46 episodes. There's plenty more to listen to. Join as a member to help support this work and share it around you to your friends, your colleagues, your family. It means a lot to me. As always, thank you. I'm your host, Isabel Hogal. Music was by Offshane. Borderline is a One Lane Bridge production.